Thank you, Daniel. What a joy it is to be opening the word with you here this morning. I don't get a lot of opportunities only because I spend a lot of time in the back with kids and teens and I count it such a privilege to serve the young people at Faith Church of Linden. You know, people ask me all the time, Mike, why are you 42 years old and still working with the kids? And in a lot of people's minds, they think about ministry to kids and they think, you know, at some point, those who are working with kids ought to graduate to the real stuff of ministry maybe in their minds. I don't know. But I have devoted so much of my life to serving kids. And I'll just tell you, I've been serving young people since I was, I want to say 14 years old, 15 years old, working with little ones in junior church. And I worked on a bus route with my church and going and spending time on Saturdays with kids and ministering to young people and going into college and realizing and recognizing, man, God really desires to mobilize the next generation of of worshipers and servants in the church and and feeling that call on my life that said God uh, that, that said God wants to use you Mike Dunford to continue to minister and to serve and to give your life for the young people for the honor and glory of Jesus name you know it's my hope and my prayer here this morning that as we open the word we look at 1 Samuel chapters 16 and 17 that a fire will start burning in you as well as you look at God's unlikely hero and you see all of the ways in which God mobilized this young man. And I would say that God mobilized this young man in spite of all of the adult voices in his life that were pushing against the way in which God wanted to use him. I want to start by asking you a question. As we think about ministry to young people, What are you expecting from the young people whom God has given you the opportunity to interact with? Parents, what are you expecting from your kids? Siblings, what are you expecting from your brothers and sisters, both older and younger? Youth workers, what are you expecting from the young people that God has placed in your life? You know what, I, I started asking this question in preparation for this message. What is the average American expecting from their kids? You know, there's a popular information site on the internet called about.com, and they have about anything and everything you can imagine to say about just about any topic you can fathom. And I looked it up, and I asked, what are the expectations that parents are placing on their kids? And this is what about.com had to say about things that maybe you should expect of your young people. It said preteens. How many of you are preteens? Hands up in the air. Preteens. Okay. Preteens should be able to manage their own allowance. They should be able to make plans with their friends. They should be able to give parents necessary information. Parents, are your kids giving you necessary information? Preteens, you might need to step up on that one. Need to have daily habits such as making bed cleaning your room, vacuuming, and dusting. Rhythms, I think, that as parents, we would all love to see in our kids, right? Being able to take messages and putting them somewhere where a parent will see them. Wow, more laughter on that one. I'm guessing that's an issue. Older teens, okay, 17 years and up. 17 years and up. Clean your room every week. 
daily, weekly household chores that ought to be a rhythm for your life. For those of you who are driving, make sure that the gas gauge does not go below half tank. That'd be, that'd be a nice thing, right? Marking special dates on a calendar. And now, you're listening to this list and you might be thinking to yourself, well, there, there's not a lot there. I mean, this is all like basic don't die kind of stuff, right? But they had this to say at the very bottom. Please don't feel that your teenagers should do all of these things. Pick a few things. Add to the list as your child grows more and more comfortable with his or her current responsibilities. I found myself thinking, wow, as Americans, we're really raising the bar on expectations of our kids. You know, according to societal norms, and guys, this is where my brain went on this. Teens are expected to get A's in sex, in sports, in video games, in social media, in going to the mall, in hanging out with their friends, in being tech savvy, and F's in doing earth-shaking things for God. In turning the world upside down for the honor and glory of his name. And I propose to you this morning that this very philosophy is creeping into the church. So I'm going to ask you, as we move into this text, what are you expecting from the young people that God has put in front of you? You know, as we take a look at 1 Samuel 16 and 17, we're going to see an example of a young boy whose society said would not amount to much. But God would choose to use mightily for the sake of his name. And as this boy was moved by God, we're going to see three key leadership groups that emerge in this text. These three groups played critical roles in shepherding David's heart. We see David's dad first. Then we see David's siblings, his brothers. And then lastly in this text, we're going to see David's leaders. And it is, it is with these three groups that we find the crux of our challenge here this morning. And I would ask that as we march through the word of God, that you would ask the spirit to search your heart and reveal to you the ways in which you can unleash God's greatness in the hearts of your kids. Let's look at chapter 16 together. Chapter 16 opens up in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? You know, these harsh words spoken by God to Samuel came on the heels of the leadership headaches that started out in 1 Samuel 8 when Israel demanded a king so that they could be like all of the other nations. In verses 5 through 9, we see that Israel desired to be like all of the people groups that they were around. Being unique, being set apart unto God was not enough for them. They wanted something different. They wanted an identity that was no different than the nations around them. And as a result, verse 7 says that they rejected God's rule. They forsook the God who delivered them in verse 8. They replaced God with idols that they made with hands. It wasn't enough to serve the eternal one. They wanted something tangible that they could get their hands on. So they crafted idols and it replaced the true worship of the one true God. And as a result, the scripture says, God gave them over to the desires of their heart. God gave the people a king and specifically God gave them King Saul. You know, brothers and sisters, this 
way of thinking defines the society in which we live. This way of thinking is creeping into the church. It's infiltrating our hearts. We see the attractiveness of the world. Our kids see the attractiveness of the world. Moms and dads, we see the attractiveness of the world and we, we desire it for our lives. And it evidences itself in the way that we dress. Now, this isn't a message on modesty, but you know, there is a reality that as we look at the world around us and then we look at ourselves and we look at our families, the clothes are getting tighter, the skirts are getting shorter. There's this push for sexy attractiveness and dress is creeping into the way that we think. Music, the world's music is creeping into the way that we think. This idea for popularity and to be thought well of in the eyes of the world is creeping into the way that we think and the way that we process. We're, we're abandoning some of the principles that Scripture teaches us in regards to what worship ought to look like, and it's infiltrating the church. Activities. This way of thinking led to Israel's demise. Saul was inaugurated into office in chapter 10. We find that Saul was exactly what Samuel warned the people that he would be in chapter 8, verses 10 through 17. He warned the people. He says, if you desire to be like the other nations, here's what it's going to look like. I want to prep you. This is not going to be fun for you. Saul is going to draft your sons into his military. He will appoint people to plow his grounds. He will take your daughters, your perfumers, your cooks, your bakers. He will take the best of your fields, a tenth of your grain. He's going to take your servants, your flocks, and you will be his slaves. That's what Samuel said when Israel said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. It's not good enough to serve Yahweh. We want to be like the other nations of the world. And he went on to say that when you come to your senses and you realize that the things I warned you are coming to pass, I will not hear your complaints. So don't come to me whining and complaining when it turns out exactly like I'm telling you. And in verse 19, we see the response of the people. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there will be a king over us so that we can be like the other nations. So in chapter 16, we see Samuel's warning come to, coming to fruition as the Lord states to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he's going to kill me. How would you like to be the bearer of that message? The Lord understood the seriousness of this challenge. So he made a special provision for Samuel. He said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I'm going to show you what you should do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did all that the Lord commanded. He came to Bethlehem, and it says that the elders of the city came out to meet Samuel, and they were trembling. Wow, Samuel must have been one intense dude. <laughs> As he approaches the city of Bethlehem, and the elders meet him, and they, they are trembling. Well, what was it about Samuel, you think, that caused them to tremble? Well, he was known throughout the land as being God's man. 
God had a special mark on him. He was using him mightily for his name's sake. And undoubtedly all of Israel would have remembered how Samuel executed Agag in chapter 15. And we remember that story, how, how, how God commanded Saul to wipe out Agag and wipe out the nation. And, and Samuel comes back to the tribe and he hears the sound of animals and he sees that Saul disobeyed. And Samuel desired to show a message, to give a message throughout all of the land that you obey Yahweh. There is one voice that you listen to. And he hacked Agag to pieces and sent pieces throughout all of the land of Israel to teach them a lesson. And undoubtedly, they knew this. Samuel was a serious guy. He was a seer, which is another word for prophet, which people often associated with the office of judge. And as a prophet and as a judge, he had a direct line of communication to Yahweh, the eternal one. So when the people came to him trembling, undoubtedly, they were probably fearful, thinking that Samuel had come to Bethlehem, to beat them down in some way, shape, or form. They were scared. Fear drove the people to say, do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, yes, I come peaceably. I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And as Jesse and the boys gathered for sacrifice, Samuel asked the boys, to pass by, them, pass by him one by one, hoping that God revealed to him who the next leader would be. And it's here in these next verses that we find our first challenge in this passage. Really, the first group of people, we find this challenge to moms and dads. And as Eliab passed by in verse 6, Samuel thought to himself, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. And what do you think caused Samuel to think that Eliab was the one? Well, Perhaps it was his stature. Perhaps it was his perceived maturity. He was the oldest. Certainly God would choose to use the oldest, right? It's amazing to me that as Samuel responds here, that he still failed to see the crystal clear object lesson that God desired to paint for him in the life and fall of King Saul. Samuel still didn't get the point. Verse 7, the Lord spells out for Samuel exactly what he's looking for. But the Lord said to Samuel, it says, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, as we look through scripture, we see example after example after example after example of God choosing the non-conventional methods to accomplish his purposes. And the question you have to ask yourself is why? Well, God does this so that he can get all the glory. He doesn't work in the same manner that I would. You know, if I was looking to build a team for any event, whether it's sports or whatever, I would be looking for the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, the most competent, Jeremy Cochran. <laughs> I'd be looking for the person that I'm like, wow, that person is athletic and he's got it all together. You know, I want somebody like that on my team because I want to be sure that I'm going to win. But you know, that's not how God works. That's not how God works. God is looking for the nerdy. He's looking for the imperfect. 
He's looking for the humble. He's looking for the dependent. And time after time after time, as you're looking through Scripture, you see examples of all the ways in which God works and the types of people that he chooses, making the humanly illogical choice so that he alone would get the glory. We see God choosing the fearful in Moses. Exodus chapter 2. Moses was terrified. And yet God said, no, you're my man. And Moses said, no, you don't understand. I can't talk, God. I'm going to stumble all over myself. God, you can't use that. And God said, no, that's exactly the one I want to use. Be faithful and obey. He chooses the fearful. He chooses the cowardly and Gideon. You know where God found Gideon? Hiding. And then the spirit of the Lord says, you know, come, get in, you mighty man of valor. I, I have to think that there was some sarcasm there. Like, you're hiding like a coward. You're, you're the opposite of a mighty man of valor. Yet God desired to use him in Judges 6. We see God using the imbecile in Samson, Judges 13. We see God using the eight-year-old boy in Josiah in 2 Kings 22. We find God using the thug in Peter. Peter was a big guy. Peter, Peter was a bruiser. He was the speak first, think later kind of guy. You know, Peter was looking to, to slice Malchus in half. He only got his ear because I'm guessing Malchus flinched. God desired to use the crook in Matthew. God desired to use the impoverished in the, in the widow and her mites. God decided to use the violent opposer in calling Saul of Tarsus. You know, God has a way of involving the unlikely choice and bringing glory to himself through using the world's castoffs. That's how God works. You know, as the rest of the sons pass by before Samuel in verses 8 through 10, chapter 16, Samuel stated in verse 10, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So the sons are all passed. Nobody's chosen. Samuel's scratching his head. And I imagine confusion filled his mind as the Lord made it clear that God was going to choose somebody from Jesse's house. And in confusion, Samuel says to Jesse in verse 11, are, are all of your sons here? And he said, well, there, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. You know, as we near our first challenge for moms and dads, let me ask you a question. What do you think it was that caused Jesse to leave David out of consideration? Maybe it was David's age. There remains yet the youngest. Certainly, God, you're not going to use him. I mean, definitely you're going to choose my firstborn. Come on. Maybe it was his age. He indicated that there were more worthy candidates than David in his mind, as David was just a boy. Maybe it was David's duties. He was keeping the sheep. I mean, that was one of the lowly tasks. I mean, a, sheep, a shepherd can't become a king. That doesn't make sense. Maybe it was a heart of fear, not ready to lose David to the ways of Yahweh. You know, while Jesse discounted David's ability to make a difference, God clearly had other things in mind. And, and we see this in verse 12. It says, he sent and brought David in. David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. David was just the type of servant that God desired to use. Do we ever find ourselves making similar judgments about our kids? You know, I step back and I dream about my kids and I think about my kids often. And the dreams that flood my mind easily and quickly 
are things like, I, I want to see my kids happily married to a godly spouse. Not a bad wish, right? I want lots and lots of grandkids. I want to see them involved in a great church. Preferably Faith Church of Linden. I don't want them to go too far. I want to see them working for a good company, making a really good living, sitting on some insanely healthy investments so that they can support me and my bad choices that I made early in life. <laughs> but do I find myself dreaming about one day my kids turning the world upside down for the honor and glory of King Jesus? Do I ever dream about them taking the message of the gospel to the unreached people groups of the world? Or do I find myself, maybe not saying these words out loud, but thinking them, please God, don't take them too far. Please God, don't do that in their life. Selfishly clinging to my own agenda. And this brings me to our first point for moms and dads, and that is very simple. God wants to use your kids. Don't get in the way. Don't get in the way. And this begs the question, in what ways did Jesse get in the way of all it was that God desired to do in the heart of this young boy? Well, Jesse allowed David's age to limit his usefulness. He allowed that thought in his mind to keep him from pushing David forward and mobilizing him for the sake of the mission. Jesse, I am sure, questioned David's readiness for such a calling. And sure, David had lots to learn. But David had a heart that was wholly devoted to Yahweh. And he had a desire to follow him, to obey him, to, to listen to his voice. Jesse probably thought that others were more suitable for the task that God had in store. Jesse failed to see God's track record of using the small to accomplish big things for his glory. You know, if we're being honest in our own struggles as parents, oftentimes we're guilty of the same line of thinking. What are the specific ways in which we as parents stand in the way of all it is that God wants to do? You know, I found myself asking these questions of myself and of my own heart. And I'm going to share them with you to think about this as it comes to, to following God and mobilizing our kids. Here's a question. Am I more prone to fight with my kids than I am to fight for them? In other words, am I, am I drawn into petty arguments, arguments over silly things, arguments over things that don't matter? Am I more quick to argue so that I can prove my point than I am at fighting for them in prayer, earnestly on my knees? Do I find myself prayerfully pursuing God's best in their lives? Am I getting on my face before God each and every day and pleading with God through tears, please, God, use my kids. Please, God, draw their hearts to love you, to know you, to honor you, to follow you, to live for you. God, help them to love your word first and foremost. God, give them a heart of gospel for the nations. God, open their eyes that they would see your glory, your beauty, your majesty. Am I praying earnestly for them? Am I praying that God leads them to a spouse that will set their heart on fire for the honor and glory of King Jesus? And that together, that marriage will bring honor and glory to his name as they raise kids to love Jesus and shoot them out into the world. 
Am I dismissive and even critical of my kids' passions? Dismissing them as childish versus mobilizing them for the mission. Let me give you an example of the ways in which I fail as a dad. You know, my, my kid loves German culture and German language and German things, and it's, it's, it's interesting for him. And I find myself in my flesh, and I've confessed this to him, so I'm not doing my confession here in front of you to him, but I, I didn't value that. I, I discounted that. Instead of saying, wow, God's placed a passion in your heart for Germany. That's kind of cool. How do you think God might want to use that one day to bring honor and glory to his name? You love learning German. How do you think God might mobilize the German language in your heart and in your mind to go and to be a ministry to those people who don't know you, know him? Instead, I'm looking at it and saying, this irritates me because every phrase out of his mouth is German and I don't speak German. Did you hear where I'm going with this? Seeing how God is wiring our kids and inviting conversation into their lives to say, how do you think God might use that? Think about your kids. Think about the passions. Think about the things that God has given them. And think differently about that. Now, some of the things that our kids like maybe needs to be shepherded and shaped for sure, but helping them to see, you know what, God's given you interests and desires for a purpose, and that purpose is to spread his name throughout all of the earth. You like playing video games, and you play it with that goofy headset. I can either make fun of that, or I can say, how is God giving you relationships in that community that you can shine brightly for him? giving them eyes to see, helping them, guiding them, strengthening them? Am I mobilizing their passions for the mission? Do I fail to see the priority of establishing God-centered disciplines that fuel life in my kids? Do I look at their 24-hour day and do I strategize prayerfully to say, how can God use these 24 hours in the heart of my kid? And am I shaping them and guiding them to say, you know what, life is a vapor. It appears for a little time and it vanishes away. You're looking at this 24 hours and likely you're looking to the next couple days when you've got off of school. Well, look at today and say, how does God want to use it? Let's build the disciplines today, son, daughter, child. Let's build them today because God is going to use those disciplines to fuel life, to fuel a deep and abiding pursuit of him, to fuel a passion, to turn the world upside down for the honor and glory of Jesus. Do I shape them to love deeply world's priorities versus the things of God? That's a gripper for me. What types of things do I find it easy to prioritize in my pursuit of life? Vacation, sports, entertainment, pleasure, money, toys. You fill in the blank because moms and dads, we're living the values that we claim to have. I say that I love Jesus, and yet if I look at where I'm spending my money, my time, my energy, my resources, it says anything but Jesus, and it says everything about me. And if I look at my life and I ask that honest question, Am I shaping them to love deeply the world's priorities? I look at my own heart and I say, man, am I failing? I need to get more serious about it. I need to get more intentional with it because the reality is whether I like it or not, I'm shepherding them to enjoy something. 
Shepherding is happening in your home. There will be a handoff. One day they'll leave your house and they will take on those values that you've lived out for them in a very real way. And then when you look at their lives in their early adult years and you say, my kids aren't running hard after God, you look back at your own heart and your own life and you say, wow, did I live that out for them? Did I show them what it looked like? Do I shape them to love deeply the world's priorities versus the things of God? Do I, do I excuse behavior as kids being kids versus teaching them to lay hold of the vapor that God has given them? Do I guide them to a man-centered kingdom mindset versus a God-centered kingdom mindset? Is my world wrapped up in Jesus? Moms and dads, let us not get in the way of what it is that God is seeking to do in the lives of our kids. Let's dream big. God-centered dreams for them and mobilize the mission in their hearts and minds. God wants to use the kids. Don't get in the way. As chapter 17 unfolds, we see the armies of Israel in yet another precarious spot. The armies of the Philistines had them pinned down at Sokah and Azekah. Let's take a look together, verses 2 through 7. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered. They encamped in the valley of Elah. They drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, Israel on the other. There was a valley between them. They came out of the camp of the Philistines, a champion whose name was Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits and a span, nine and a half feet tall. He had a helmet of bronze, armed with a coat of mail. The weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron and the shield bearer went on before him. What a challenge, right? If it weren't bad enough to have to go into battle against the fierce Philistines, now we have to face this ginormous beast of a man. His height was six cubits in a span, nine and a half feet tall. His coat weighed 5,000 shekels, which was about 125 pounds. How many of you like to wear big, heavy coats? How many of you think you could carry a 125-pound coat along with other things? The shaft of his spear was about two and a half inches in diameter, and the head of the spear weighed approximately 15 pounds. So, so you're thinking about all that weight, and then you start to think about the man that carried that weight, the arms that threw that giant spear and wielded those intense weapons. Goliath was a beast. But was he any match for God? Let's read on. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself. Let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words, the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What was it about the situation that had them freaking out? Well, Goliath was a big dude. <laughs> they failed to remember the immensity of their God. And this was the God that brought the plagues on Egypt. 
Remember, right? Exodus. This was the God that parted the Red Sea. This was the God that brought water from a rock. This was the God that was able to rain down bread and meat from heaven, the God that collapsed the walls of Jericho, and they failed to realize that this same God desired to manifest his greatness in them as well. God had intentionally placed them in a humanly impossible situation so that he alone would get the glory. And who would God choose to use in this situation to teach them this valuable lesson? Well, it's here that we find our second challenge, our second group of people, and that's brothers and sisters. So teenage brothers and sisters, kids, listen up. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle, Eliab, the firstborn, then Abinadab, then Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Once again, we see this boy, David, emerging onto the scene again. Youngest of eight sons, little guy. His brothers probably thought of him as a twerp. I don't think that's an expression used anymore. His three oldest brothers served in Saul's army, and David continued to watch over dad's sheep. And as Goliath took his stand for 40 days, Jesse was moved by God to send David to serve his brothers by bringing, bringing them food and bringing back a report of their well-being. And as David was delivering his goods to his brothers, Goliath comes out and he starts barking at the people, challenging them, thus defying the armies of the living God. As David witnessed the fear in the hearts of the soldiers, he was moved to speak out. And he speaks out in verse 26. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. In the verses that follow, we find God's challenge to siblings, to brothers and sisters. When Eliab heard David's words in verse 28, scripture says that his anger was kindled against David. David's speaking out in a great way. But the brothers were furious at him. And what do you think it was that got them so upset? Well, David was just a boy. What, he, what did he understand about life, let alone military matters? Why in the world is my little twerp of a brother, David, coming here, trying to tell us how we need to fight? This is ridiculous. David, get out of here. He's only trying to make me look bad. You know, David had a very simple faith that understood the vastness of his God. David knew how it was that God desired to use him. Eliab only saw himself. And brothers and sisters, do we ever find ourselves discounting what God wants to do in the lives of our siblings? Do we ever find ourselves thinking wrongly about the brothers and sisters that are in our lives? Do you find yourself so blinded by your own pride that you fail to see God's desire to use the kids? God's challenge to you is very simple. God wants to use your brothers and sisters. Don't get in the way. Don't get in the way. What are some of the ways in which siblings can interfere with what it is that God desires to do? Here are some questions for you to consider. Do you fail to acknowledge the leadership that God has given you amongst your siblings? I imagine David looked up to Eliab and Shammah 
and his older brothers. I imagine he looked up to them. He aspired to be like them. He desired to, to live life like them and wanted probably to have some of their success. I imagine that. And they failed to realize that. Do you look at your life and say, you know what? God has put me in their lives for a purpose. God desires for me to be a leader. God desires for me to show them what it means to live a life for Jesus. Do you fail to acknowledge the leadership that God has given you? Number two, are you quick to discount their usefulness for the sake of the kingdom? Are you ready to look past them and to think beyond their abilities and, and say, certainly God will not use them? Or are you mobilizing them in their gifts and abilities that God has blessed them with? Do you demonstrate a godlessness in your speech in actions towards your brothers and sisters versus showing them what it means to run hard after Jesus? Do you stand ready to fight with your siblings, bickering, arguing, competitiveness, expressions of anger versus fighting for them in prayer? When was the last time you got on your knees before God and prayed for your siblings? You know, when word spread to King Saul of David's desire to see God's name vindicated and the mouths of this, mouth of this Philistine silenced, he sent for David. There's something special about David. David says to Saul in verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. What? How is it that the entire army was terrified of this guy, yet a little boy, likely 12, 13, somewhere in there, was ready to go and fight. David's confidence rested not in his own abilities, but his confidence rested squarely on the shoulders of an amazing God who is able to do exceedingly above anything that he could ever ask or think. David was ready to give his life if that was what it took for the sake of God's glory. You know, as we unpack the verses that follow, we find God's final challenge to youth workers and spiritual leaders, and we're almost finished. Thank you for bearing with me in this. But let's read this together. Follow along with me, if you will, in these next verses. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. He's been doing this longer than you've been alive, David. Certainly you can't do this. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and it took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him from out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard. I struck him down. I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine should be like one of them. He's defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go. Lord be with you. I wonder if that was heartfelt or if that was sarcastic, tongue in cheek. Good luck. <laughs> you know, as Saul contemplated David's offer, his initial response to David was no. Why? Well, David was just a kid. Goliath was a seasoned war vet. What in the world could David possibly do against such fierceness? What chance did he have? Certainly Saul had more physically capable warriors that he could send. Saul failed to see the immensity of David's God. Saul failed to realize that when God calls a person to a task, like God was calling David 
God was going to equip him. You know, as David responded to Saul, David reminded Saul of his courage in the face of adversity, of his unwavering commitment to the cause. He's defied the armies of the living God. Are you kidding? There's not a more noble reason to go than that. I don't care if I lose my life. I'm not going to let him defy the armies of the living God. And David had a confidence in the Lord to deliver him from the hand of the Philistines. And Saul responded to David, go. The Lord be with you. Do we ever find ourselves, youth workers, in a similar place when we think about the usefulness of the kids? We find ourselves thinking, man, they're just kids. I'm just going to let it go. They're just kids. Or I have an hour to fill. I have an hour to fill. It is so much easier just letting them play than to try and teach them something. (laughs) Ministry is what grown-ups do. I'm just going to let them be kids. Youth workers, God's challenge to us is clear. God wants to use the kids. Don't get in the way. What are the ways in which we hinder God's plans as youth workers and leaders? Some questions for us to consider. Some things that I pondered even in my own heart. Do I I pray earnestly for those in my care? Do I fight for their souls? And and you know what? You you think and you say, wow, in youth ministry, you're you're, you're faced with kids who are, are growing and moving and taking productive steps in their walk. And you've got tangible things to, to, to pray over them. But it's very different, Mike, when I'm in the nursery. I've got little babies and all they're doing is crying. You know what? Those little babies will grow into young boys and young girls, to godly men, to godly women that are going to one day turn the world upside down for the honor and glory of King Jesus. Pray for those babies. Pray with those babies. As you're sitting back in that nursery, if that's a ministry that God has called you to, recognize that that time is so special. There's never going to be a better time and another time where you're going to have a captive audience that can't go anywhere. (laughs) Right? It doesn't take long for those little babies to become toddlers, then they're off. Sit with them in your arms. Pray over them. Pray God's grace over them. Write down the names of those students. Pray for them throughout the week. Pray for their future spouses. Pray for their hearts to run hard after Jesus. Pray that they grow up with a big view of God and a desire to follow hard after him. Do you pray? Do you pray? Nursery all the way on up that God would do a great thing. Do you recognize, number two, the seriousness of the spiritual warfare at play every time we gather and strategize and prepare for war as appropriate In other words, recognizing, you know, that every time I gather, I'm seeking to see the Spirit of God pour over them. And if the Spirit of God is at work, you better understand that there is a devil who is working hard to undo everything that God wants to do in their hearts and in their lives. Are you preparing for battle or are you simply allowing your week to go by and then Saturday night and the, oh, shoot, I'm teaching tomorrow, man. I'll be in bed in 30 minutes. Give me a few minutes to pull my thoughts together for tomorrow, then I'm coming to bed. Then you wake up and you come to church and you serve and you wonder why your ministry is fruitless. God wants to use the kids. You know what? We get in the way as leaders when we fail to realize and recognize the seriousness 
of the ministry to which God has called us. Saul missed that. David understood it, and he wanted to run hard after it. He was a put-me-in coach kind of kid. Do we recognize the seriousness? Are we preparing appropriately? Are we more concerned about filling time than we are about shaping young hearts to enjoy a big God? Are we looking at that time and strategizing that hour, that hour and a half, and saying, man, God wants to use this. Ooh, I've got an extra 10 minutes. Daniel's going long. Praise God. Let's pray with these kids. Let's share more truths with them. Or do I find myself looking at the clock and saying, goodness, lunch is coming. Are you kidding me? Ah. Are you faithful to show the kids through your life what true dedication to the cause looks like? If they grew up to be the kind of Christian that you are, what would that look like? Would you shake your, and, would you shake your head and say, oh no, please, <laughs> aspire to more? Or would you be excited if they followed you as you followed Christ? You know what? These are important gut check questions for us as leaders to look at our lives and to say, how are we shepherding kids? How are we shaping kids? What kind of a view of God are they getting from us, from the lives that we live? Are we sensing a theme here? You know, as the story unfolds in the rest of chapter 17, we see the extent to which God desired to use this little boy. We know the story. And I'm not going to read through the text, but, but Saul sought to equip David with his armor to fight. David said, no, this armor is foreign to me. I can't use that. And God led David to a riverbed. God sovereignly guided his hand to choose five smooth stones. And as David entered the battlefield, armed only with his faith and his sling and his five smooth stones, Goliath jeered at his size and his seeming lack of military experience. And, Gol and David responds to Goliath with his confidence in the very hosts of heaven. Goliath didn't get it. With God, David was the giant. And God wanted to use him to teach the rest of the world what true faith looked like and to set their hearts on fire for the honor and glory of Yahweh. Parents and siblings and youth workers, sometimes we don't get it. As I think of the best way to equip my kids for life, whether homeschool or private school or public school, if I have not equipped them with an enormous view of God and an unwavering desire to, for God to use them to accomplish humanly impossible tasks, I have set them on a path to bankruptcy. God desperately wants to use the kids. And our story ends with God leading David into battle with the Philistine and sovereignly guiding. So you remember the story, right? Only a boy named David. You remember that song? Or am I the only one that knows that little song? Only a little sling. He's winding that up and round and round and round and round. He lets that go. And God sovereignly guided that stone and he smacked it right into the head of that Philistine and brought that giant down to his knees. God wrought... An amazing victory that day because a little boy was willing to step out and be used by God in a way that was awkward and uncomfortable. And he did it in spite of the leaders in his life, in spite of the siblings that said, no, not you, in spite of his dad who says, you're not ready. David stepped up and, and God wrought a great victory through this little boy. You know, as we close out our time here today, 
If you're convicted in your heart like I am in mine over the ways in which I'm leading my kids, you might be asking yourself, how do I, as a parent, a sibling, a youth worker, unleash all it is that God has in store for these little ones? How can I guide them to do earth-shaking things for God's glory? In closing, as we wrap up, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen up carefully. I'll be very brief. But in this chapter, we find five practical ways for us as parents and leaders and siblings to shepherd our kids to achieve all it is that God has for them. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, first, teach them to fear the Lord. Help them to have a big view of God. Help them to understand that there is a God in heaven who loves them and cares for them and is worthy of our worship and praise and everything we do ought to bring honor and glory to him. Teach them to fear Yahweh, the eternal one. Teach them to love Yahweh, their God. And how do we love him? Well, we love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. You know, little buddy, when you, when you lash out in anger at your brother, Guess who you're demonstrating that you love supremely right now in that moment? You love me a whole lot more than you love your brother right now, don't you? You love yourself a whole lot more than you love your sister right now, don't you? Yes. Well, let me teach you what does it mean to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a parent, it's a whole lot easier for me to deal with the behavior in that moment than it is for me to shepherd that young heart to enjoy a big God that takes strategy, that takes prayer, that takes effort. And I'll tell you, you can raise kids that, are, that, that behave and honor you, but you want them to understand the importance and the centrality of loving God. So teach them. Help them see the importance of priorities. Help them to see that where I spend my time the most determines what I love the most. If I want to teach my kids to love money, then you know what? Let's talk a lot about money. If I want to teach my kids to love sports, then man, that's going to be our world. If I want to teach my kids to love vacation, then you know what? Let's make that all about what we do. We're a vacationing family. You know what? I want my kids to love Jesus. I want them to love Yahweh. Teach them to fear the Lord. Teach them to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let spiritual conversation always be on your lips. Dads, you might be saying, you know what? This feels weird to me. Well, we got to get over the awkwardness and recognize that I shepherd with my words, I shepherd with my life, and if I want my kids to love Jesus, I need the words of Jesus to always be on my lips, which means when I'm sitting down at the table, it's what are the ways in which God has worked in your heart this week? As we get up in the morning, what are the ways in which you think God wants to use you this week? Hey, let's talk about some scriptures together. Let's, what are the ways in which God challenged you in your quiet time? You're making it a constant conversation. Let spiritual conversations always be on your lips. Never forget the God who rescued you from being the object of his wrath to make you his sons and his daughters in verses 10 and 15. Never let the kids forget God's immense goodness. I'm gonna invite the worship team up as we wrap up our time here. This is the main thrust. Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, leaders, we must intentionally shepherd the young ones in the ways that they must go because God desires to use them. God desires to use them. And the reality is most of your kids 
are like this, ready for a handoff. And we're running, we're running hard, and we're getting ready to slap that baton in their hands. And what type of a baton we give them, what type of a baton we give them is, is going to be determined by where our passions lie. Because values will be transferred. They will be transferred. The question is, are we intentionally pursuing those things that are going to be fueling life for them? Just as God desires to use the little ones, our adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And guess who he's going after? Guess. The kids. The kids. My prayer for us today is that God would empower this church to take seriously our call to shepherd the young people. It's why I've been serving kids since I was 14 years old. Because God wants to use them. God wants to use them. And the hard thing is through the years, trying to convince parents that God wants to use them has been probably the hardest mission I've ever had to embrace. And gut-wrenching. As parents talk me out of the ways in which I think God wants to use their kids. They're fearful. They're timid. And the reality is they fail to see the immensity of a big God. What about you here this morning? My prayer for us is that God would help us to take this calling seriously, that, that we would empower our kids to achieve all that God has for them, and that, we, and that we would not get in the way of all the ways in which he desires to use them. Let's close a word of prayer. Father, thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your love and your compassion. Thank you, God, for saving us and keeping us and giving us life. Thank you, God, for the ministry and the mission that you put in front of us. Help us, God, not to squander the time, but to redeem it. And Lord, I know this message, God, could, can be a, a hard-hitting message for some. And for all of us, God, for me included, God, it's hit me right between the eyes to say, get about the things that you want me to be about prioritize those things that are life and nurturing and helpful for the sake of your kingdom. And God, we'll give you all the honor and praise and glory for everything you do in us and through us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. amen.